Well, Blake, let's go down memory lane for a minute. What, uh, I, I remember something about a song and a white van, and it was a year that uh, the big song was uh, I'm on a boat, but we did something with that differently about being in a van. Do you, do you remember that one? You got me. I, you probably remember it better. I, don't, I, don't, I do not remember. I'm terrible right now. Oh, that was, uh, we, we did a Christmas tournament at Ohio State University, and Kaylin really wanted to, uh, wanted us to win the contest. It wasn't so much about who won Extemp or DI oh, that year. I, yeah, see, I, I remember the trauma of this, not the words of this. <laughs> the trauma, the trauma. What, what, what's the trauma that sticks in your mind? I mean, look at this. What's this been now? Like eight or nine years? It's been far too long. Yeah. No. Uh, so I loved, I loved the forensic community, but that that song, I just remember the. Was it like a Twelve Days of Christmas or something? Something or like that. I remember yeah. we we did the uh, we did Carol of the Bells. Like Thirty forensic references for each of the days. Uh, <laughs> Instead of the actual days of Christmas, yeah, I felt I felt very much like Kalen, who was a musical theater person, uh, in, in our debate forensic circuit. Uh, she sort of took on the role of choir director, and then we, except it was college. Uh, <laughs> that's that, that's probably about right. I. Oddly enough, I, I could not sing it for you. I have no idea what we actually did. Oh, I just I, I just remember uh, we had all kinds of jokes about uh, a white creeper van and all being kidnapped on the on the van on the trip to the tournament or something. It was, it was fun. No, no, I loved the the. Uh, I did forensics and debate. I probably did. I did a lot more forensics than debate actually, um, but I did kind of the closest thing to debate you could do in forensics with extemp and impromptu, which is much of what you did too. Right, and right. So I, yeah, I enjoyed the community in general. I don't know if the van song was the best part. Of it, <laughs> but, oh, but for sure. Yeah, I do. I do. We have lots of memories, more positive than just that one. Very, sure. very true. And I'm sure we'll get to some of those over this conversation. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. And today, my guest on What's the Res is Blake Faulkner, doctoral candidate in communications at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As you've just heard, Blake and I go back a few years ago to uh, time together on the Hillsdale College Forensics team. And today he's going to lend us his expertise on Friedrich Nietzsche and just uh, and hopefully with some insights on how Nietzsche might be helpful to people looking to prepare for the NSDA Nationals LD resolution. That resolution reads, violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. Blake, welcome to What's the Res? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. So glad you could join us today. We'll, we'll help our audience know a little bit about you. Uh, who are you? What are you studying? And how did you end up in Chapel Hill of all places? Well, I actually initially was thinking about going into academic religion. I, th I, had a master I got a master's degree in religion first um, and also thought about going into pastoral ministry for quite some time. Um, that was sort of the goal. Decided that I wanted to go into communication, which was I have an undergraduate degree in that, and I did a lot of forensics and debate with you all uh, in undergrad, so I already was interested in that. Turns out there are a lot more jobs in communication than anywhere else in, <laughs> in the academy, so uh, it kind of worked out for practical reasons, but but also uh, I was I found out that there's just a lot more range of different arguments you can make in the communication field than you could in the religion field of academia. 
Um, so that's kind of why I'm here now. And I have an interest in rhetoric in critical philosophy uh, and also in ancient rhetoric and ancient philosophy. And so uh, Chapel Hill, the communication program here is very much suited for people that are interested in trying to address contemporary questions uh, with critical theory. Um, but they're also willing to house someone like me who can read people that are more than, say, 100 years old or something. Um, so oh, that, that, so that Nietzsche makes fits that. And I have, I have some classic Greek background as well, which matched up nicely with Nietzsche, who was also a classicist. Um, so now my work is, is largely centered on writing a dissertation on how we use the term political correctness and incorrectness. Um, and I use Nietzsche to sort of criticize the way we usually talk about those things in public discourse. So you've really been soaking in Nietzsche for, for a while then. Yeah, I wouldn't say in undergrad I did much work with him, but in graduate school he's been a very he's been very helpful for me and very I, I think he has a good insight into um, sort of the reactionary uh, way of thinking that we have today and have had for some time. Um, and also, just like I said, we speak a similar language. So he he was a classicist, and I have a deep interest in classics and. I have an interest in philosophy, as does he, and so he just kind of gives me some of the equipment I like to use um, for talking about essentially reactive politics and reactive ethics. Well, that's going to be really helpful uh, in, in looking at this resolution then. Before we get there, help us just a little bit with uh, what exactly uh, the academic study of communications is. I know I looked at just a tiny sliver of that. I did a rhetorical criticism piece my senior year at Hillsdale, and I got a little bit into Mikhail Bakhtin and his theory of the carnival. I, I got really intrigued by how the, the TV show South Park might just demonstrate his theory of the carnival. But beyond that, I never really got too deep into communications. What exactly is this, is this field that you're studying in? Well, uh, generally speaking, communications refer, with an S refers to, like, uh, say, NASA technical engineers or something. Mm. Uh, w without the S, communication, it's people who initially rhetoric is what communication, the communication field began as, which is what I'm interested in. Um, but it also now it houses people who study what's called interpersonal communication, organizational communication, people who study, uh, you might have heard of performance studies, different groups. Uh, there's another discipline called cultural studies. Communication is kind of a huge umbrella discipline that houses lots of different uh, domains. But the, the reason I'm in communication and the part of communication that I'm invested in is because communication is uh, more is very much committed oftentimes to uh, the critical theory tradition, critical philosophy tradition. Continental philosophy is an old term that people used to use for this. Uh, whereas in a lot of philosophy departments, you really won't read people like Nietzsche very much necessarily. There's a lot of philosophy programs where you will you won't really read much of Hegel or Kant or Nietzsche. You'll read. Uh, what's often referred to as the analytic tradition or something, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or even the classics like Plato and Aristotle. And I guess I, I went into this field because they let me read everybody in the philosophy. <laughs> um, so that's why I'm here. Um, that, that makes some people sense. look at me kind of weird because I read the analytics and the continentals. And then, you know, the, the analytics look at me weird because I can understand Nietzsche. He's often very obtuse. So that's the, the field in general is pretty broad. You can find rigid social scientists. You can find very uh, 
people doing very similar things as say literary critics in English would be doing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say I, I would be a bad representative of the whole field. <laughs> well, then we're, we're probably uh, similar in that respect then. Cause I, I, in, in my doctoral studies, um, people have to eventually con or it's a very generalist program, but people eventually have to settle on philosophy or history or literature as their concentration. And I've technically, I guess when I, the only thing I've had to do so far is click one of those three options on a Google form. But I've always been telling people that I'm intending to be in literature because it tends to be the broadest of the three. To really get into literature, you need history and philosophy and a little bit of critical theory. And But it's primarily the text that I'm most interested in. And it sounds like that's what you're really interested in as well. I would definitely say rhetoric. I mean, rhetoric used to be in the same field as English and literature. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why some old school, like our undergraduate English program was called rhetoric and great books. Yep. Um, because they used to be the same field and then rhetoricians decided they wanted to do their own thing in the early 20th <laughs> century and created their, it's a big, there's a big politics audit. But, uh, but yeah, I would say, uh, uh, rhetoricians in communication tend to be more interested in the text. Uh, and I would say I, I definitely fit under that umbrella for sure. Well, you, you've used a word a few times that I want to make sure we distinguish because inside the contemporary debate world, it has a certain meaning, but I think it's different than the way you're using it. You're talking about critical philosophy. Well, inside debate, there's a form of argumentation that I'll just, if anyone's been listening to our show, they know already that I despise this form of, of argumentation. <laughs> That's called a critique where... In, in terms of debate, some, it's one strategy that is often advocated on the national circuit. If, if for some reason you either don't have good arguments or you really don't like the resolution, you run a K or a critique on that resolution. And essentially, you argue that the resolution is advocating a morally impossible to affirm world, so we should reject the resolution entirely and argue for something instead. But I get the sense that's not the way you're using the word critique. How does, how does philosophy or the, this continental tradition of philosophy that you're describing, how does it use the word critique? What, what's buried in that term? Yeah, so uh, critique generally, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different takes on critique. But I will say, I'll try to generalize nonetheless and not worry about bothering people. Excellent. Um, because <laughs> we have a very generalist audience cow. here, so that's a good you thing. You know, there's jargon, there's jargon for everybody that has a sacred cow. Um, but, but I would say, I mean, critique is just fundamentally, it does not even mean uh, negative arguments, like often the word. But, but critique in, in the tradition that I'm a part of, which stretches back to at least Immanuel Kant uh, and people like Hegel and then stretches beyond... Uh, that generally just refers to uh, moving beyond argumentation uh, in the traditional logical propositional sense, and moving instead. I'm going to use I'm going to use logical terms to describe this because I think it's it's easier to do that. And instead, moving to sort of how do you even have premises to start one of those propositions? Mm. Um, so what's underlying? It is similar to critique in that sense that it is interested in underlying assumptions. But I would say there's no reason why uh, critical theory in general couldn't help an affirmative or a negative case. Uh, it doesn't have to be on one side or the other. And I would say it does. It could even be informing regular on-case arguments as well, not just something that's off-case or simply irrelevant or or rebelling against the the constraints that you've been given in the proposition, right? So I think it's just a different style of argumentation. It's a different style of inquiry, and it's a different style of writing that just developed over um, generally post-Enlightenment to today. 
uh, is the trajectory that it's developed in. And it's often in response to um, things like modernism, but also equally in response to uh, much of the thinking uh, that begins in antiquity and extends into uh, medieval and then postmodern, or that medieval and then modern thinking. So it's, it, that's the broadest way I could talk about critical theory. It really isn't a... Uh, I, I wouldn't limit it so much that many, it seems like many debaters often do. That, 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 at least I think that's really helpful for our audience to keep in mind. But let, let's get to our resolution. And the, the resolution here is a violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. So, Blake, what do you see in this resolution? And where, where do you see Nietzsche being helpful as people are preparing for this resolution? Right, yeah. So I, I remember listening to uh, your initial analysis of this resolution with Ethan. And you, I think you're right that the affirmative has a difficult time here in some ways, and the negative could. And I think that's simply because there are so many big terms that they have to define. Um, and so I would, you know, things like violence, for example, um, they, I think there might be more room in there for an affirmative than they might, uh, than we might initially think. Because violence is one of those things, uh, what we often refer to in my field as a God term. Uh, it's a term that everybody just sort of agrees on and doesn't question, and we just sort of let it continue to mean more or less physical harm or something. Um, but it's always bad. Uh, and so I guess I would challenge the affirmative to say, why does violence have to merely mean physical harm? Um, and if it does, if it has to mean physical harm, then yeah, you're in a you're in a weird place because you, you're going to have. I mean, it's going to be difficult to to say that. But there are plenty of philosophers, um, for instance, uh, Murray Rothbard and different different. That's a libertarian thinker who thinks of violence simply in terms of coercion or force, um, which does not necessarily have to be physically harming someone. Uh, it simply has to be talking about actions which may go against the will of another. Um, so I would say, in some ways, I think that, that what Nietzsche offers is he wants to carefully look at terms and look what's behind them, and particularly what are given assumptions behind those terms. And I think violence is one of those terms that we do have a lot of assumptions on, and we just sort of allow it to continuously mean bad physical harm, um, when maybe it should be a little bit more sophisticated than that, especially if the affirmative gets an opportunity to do a, a definition work like that, then why not, why not take that opportunity? So uh, help me with, uh, let's, let's see if we can make that a bit more concrete. What exactly are you advocating for like, ways people could take this word violence? What, what are some other directions? Because I, I mean, I, I think I, I fall in that same category as you're describing. I hear that and I assume that means physical violence. Are there, what are some other alternatives? What are, the, what are some other avenues we could define, where we could define violence? Well, so, uh, and again, I'm not describing my personal positions here. These are just options for the affirmative. Sure. Um, but... Uh, for example, traditional free speech theory says that words are not harmful, right? The First Amendment says your First Amendment right to say whatever you want to say, short of things like libel and a couple exceptions we have in the legal code, says that most of the things you say in a public forum uh, are, not, are not to be infringed upon by the government. However. There is a legal tradition that has started up since the 90s, um, critical legal studies, which, which, again, it's called critical because it does draw on this kind of a critical tradition. It's trying to argue, and it does argue now, that 
words can have psychological harm upon one another, and psychological counts as physical in some ways. And so, to me, they, they basically say speech can be violent, right? And so I guess I would want to say, uh, why should we allow whatever the status quo standard common sense uh, notion of violence is? Why does that have to be the definition of violence in the proposition? I don't know why it has to be. Any more than, say, what does it say, the word justice in here, right? I mean, the, the word justice, I mean, there is a typical definition that you and Ethan discussed of to each his due, uh, given to each what they what they deserve, um, but there's no reason why they have to use that definition of justice. So I'd say, why do you have to use the typical definition of violence necessarily? And that approach reminds me a lot of Nietzsche's goal. And uh, the the most recent work of Nietzsche I've read is uh, on the genealogy of morals, where he really does a lot of work. And if I'm remembering this correctly, he's the beginning of the. A term, the kind of a, the work of doing a genealogy of an idea and trying to kind of really trace back how far back in antiquity can we envision that idea and can we sort of deductively imagine, not just creating flights of fancy, but deductively imagine from what we know about an idea, in what circumstance could that idea have begun? He really kind of invented that idea of a genealogy. And really his whole project in that work at least seems to be to take our ideas of good and evil, right and wrong, moral duty, ethics, all these sorts of terms that are these God terms you were describing. Nietzsche says, well, wait a minute, why do we, why do we think about these the way we think about them? What if those are really the, the imposition of a strong force on a weaker force where the strong tell people what, tell the weak what to do and then say, this is what it means to be a right, a good person. And that, that, that really, so really questioning those kind of definitions, is that, is that a Nietzschean kind of move that you're advocating? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think the major term he wants to encounter uh, or he wants to interrogate in that work uh, is the, and I do think genealogy of morals is most relevant to our discussion here, but the terms good and evil. Mm. And, he think, and I would say violence is a word that, in, in any ways, has evil bound up in it already. Mm -hmm. And when but, you say something's no. violent, you're more or less morally condemning it as evil. Um, and I would say that's... He, I think Nietzsche wants to call attention to the fact that violence hasn't would, wouldn't always have to mean that. and doesn't always mean the same thing in every context. And he, 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 he wants to look at the same thing like with terms of evil and good. He wants to say that good and bad means something very different than good and evil. Hmm. Good and bad for him means just uh, the sort he talks about the noble class um, or the noble thinker. And he wants to say that the noble thinker thinks about themselves as good and people who are less fortunate than them as bad. But he doesn't think of the other person who's less fortunate as evil. Evil, he says, is, a is an extra step. It's not just that the other, the other person is foolish or misfortunate. It's that they're irredeemably corrupt and have, like, that level of malice, I think, is what he's interested in. And he says that comes from basically a politics of vengefulness. Hmm. Uh, and that's where I would say he's relevant to this discussion of political... Uh, revolution, violent revolution as a just response to political oppression, uh, in many ways, I think Nietzsche allows us to think about revolution as, uh, this is this would be one critique that could be offered among several, uh, not, a, I wouldn't say in the, in the debate sense, but simply you can object to 
what a cert, what some cases may be offering on the basis of this is merely a negative reactive strategy. It's not affirmative. It's just against the status quo. It may claim to offer something affirmative, but as you know from history, uh, most revolutions have a very hard time supplying something affirmative that sticks around afterwards and doesn't end up being worse or eating itself alive. And uh, Nietzsche in many ways predicts that kind of thing. Hmm. He says, this is because of the way we interpret suffering. And he says, there's the noble way of interpreting suffering, which is, you hurt me, I hurt you back, we're done. And then there is the, what he calls the uh, resentful, or resentiment is the French word, the resentful way of interpreting suffering, which is, you hurt me and now you, I hold a grudge against you forever and you're never going to be redeemed. And, all, and so we have this perpetual vengefulness that we sort of interpret all of our suffering through. I'd say revolution is very much open to that kind of critique. So really then the negative could look at revolution as opening up a cycle of continual revolution, almost as a response that really one revolution succeeds in a way, but that prepares the ground for the next revolution to overthrow the, the revolutionaries who become the new status quo. Yeah, I think in many ways, because you can't predict the future, as you and Ethan were talking about, um, you can't predict the future. That could cut both ways, I suppose. You could say you can't predict that the, viol that the revolution will go badly as much as you can't predict that it will go well. Um, but I think what he's interested in is, is, should we take seriously this idea of a revolution having a vision of justice? Is this vision of justice real, uh, or is it just ideal? I think Nietzsche wants to say most vision of justice are, and this is a key term for Nietzsche that I can unpack, it's sort of a conceptual term that would be helpful. He calls terms like justice ascetic ideals. And what he means by that is it's an ideal, it's a vision of a world that's better than the one we have now, but it's not one that actually exists. So in classic religion, it could be something like heaven, um, but in, in revolutionary politics, it would be something like a utopia or communism or even libertarians have a version of this where everybody sort of individually lives on their own and doesn't have any authority over them. <laughs> um, but he would say that's all. those are all ascetic ideals. They're ascetic in the sense that they, because they don't exist and they're just sort of projections of something that we don't actually have in front of us, uh, we end up guilting ourselves for not being this perfect vision of justice. <laughs> and so we beat ourselves up and we hurt ourselves. And we might even do a revolution because we feel so guilty about not achieving this perfect, this perfect justice. And uh, so I think, I think in many ways you can, you can criticize many different plans that could come out of this resolution on those grounds. Hmm. Uh, however, I think there is some Nietzschean help that could help the affirmative too. Now, I think it's interesting, uh, as you said that, it reminded me of a phrase that I hear around the school all the time where uh, we often tell students that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And where what we mean by that is that uh, many of our high school students will often, they will slave away hours and hours for the perfect homework assignment, the perfect study guide, that 105 on the, on the midterm, if, they, if extra credit is, makes that possible. And in doing that, they really ignore some of the good things and some of the places where, honestly, good enough is good enough. And uh, it sounds like what Nietzsche is picking up on there is that these revolutionary ideals, the ascetic ideals, as you called it, they really cause people to miss the good that might actually be happening for an ephemeral good that may never be realized. Yeah. And I think many people's, uh, for example, vision of justice, even the typical vision of justice, which is everybody gets what they deserve, 
Uh, Nietzsche wants to say, how on earth do you decide that that you deserve some kind of punishment or reward? So I even oh, use well, this example. You know, Blake, I always deserve reward if I'm thinking yes. of that question. I deserve. Of I, you you, do. of you probably you deserve do. reward too. I mean, we all deserve reward. No one wants punishment, right? I mean. <laughs> no, no one wants punishment. But if you deserve reward, then theoretically you can deserve punishment too. Uh, and there's no getting away from that. But, I, you know, I use this example. When people get uh, get a speeding ticket, you know, in Indiana, if you get it, I'm from Indiana, so I'm going to use this example. If you get a speeding ticket in Indiana, it's going to be like, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, uh, depending on how much you were speeding. But I have I know friends who've gotten speeding tickets in Virginia, and they get like $1,000, and they get put in jail. <laughs> Virginia right? is so, pretty harsh on their speeding. It's, it's exactly. true. It's the same crime. Right, same range of crimes. Right, maybe they go forty miles an hour over the speed limit, or something, or maybe only five. But they, but for some reason, Virginia wants to punish that more. And so, who gets to say that that person deserved to go to jail in Virginia, but the person in Indiana didn't deserve uh, to, to to go to jail? Because in Indiana, you can't go to jail for a speeding ticket in Indiana. Um, so, I guess I would want to say, in what's you know. Whatever vision of justice is picked, it often has some sort of ideal attached to it where everybody gets what they deserve, for example. And I would just want to say it's very difficult to calculate what people really deserve because you're, you're trying to make an equivalence between what people do and then what an institution does to them afterwards. You're trying to make an equivalence between the amount of money, for, for example, of the ticket. The amount of money matches the grievance or the amount of speeding. And that's somewhat of an arbitrary delegation. Uh, and I think Nietzsche points out the arbitrariness of our visions of justice often. Well, and I think that that ties directly to the revolution because the affirmative team is trying, I suspect, to make a link, a hopefully a very strong link on F, between the level of political oppression and the necessity of a violent revolution. And yeah. so they've, they've got to establish that link. And short of that, I, I can't imagine a case succeeding. Yeah, and they have to create some kind of equivalence oftentimes. Now, where I think a uh, Nietzschean perspective could help an affirmative side more, and not just a negative, yeah. but I think in many ways we, we have to be careful here. This resolution has some good things for the affirmative side where they say a violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. In other words, they're not saying that violent – I don't think the resolution is saying that violent revolution is the only just response. To political oppression. Oh, that's helpful. One among many. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's a really good insight because that means the affirmative ground really means they don't have to defend violent revolution as the even they don't even have to say it's the preferable resp just response. All they have to defend is that it is one of many just responses. So there may be extreme cases where it's viable, but many less extreme cases where it's not viable. Exactly. They just have to say there's a broad category of justice and violent revolution can fit into that category among other options available to us. And I think from a Nietzschean perspective, that, that allows for a much more pragmatic vision of justice rather than a sort of utopian or perfectionistic vision sure. of justice that's much easier to defend. For example, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence doesn't say you should just rebel if you're being oppressed. In many ways, he says, we have to suffer a lot of oppression. And he lists all of the oppression. And he says in the Declaration, after a certain point, the oppression's too much, and we, ha we don't have any other resource but revolution. Right? 
So I think that kind of an attitude is a much more defensible attitude than a uh, much more idealistic vision of, of, of the just, as it were. Well, that's that's really helpful. I, didn't, I, I missed that on my first read-throughs. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that's a very interesting way of opening the affirmative side of this resolution. Now, Blake, I'm assuming most of our readers are probably, or not readers, our listeners, I'm sorry, most of our listeners are probably very familiar with the name Friedrich Nietzsche, but... I've now judged enough high school debates that I've become pretty skeptical about how much philosophy <laughs> high schoolers really read before they run cases. Um, so if, if you were to recommend uh, maybe some short snippets of Nietzsche uh, that, that maybe in the realm of anywhere, I don't know, five between five and 50 page sections of Nietzsche, uh, where would you direct some students who might think, oh, that's interesting. I want more of Nietzsche to write my AF or my neg. Where would you send students? Yeah, so the, the key theory here that we're using and that I'm using uh, re as regards to what he calls slave morality and master morality. So one vision where suffering is something that, uh, that harms us in the moment, but we don't have guilt afterwards, um, but, 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 a, but a more lasting vengefulness that he calls slave morality, that's where he, uh, he identifies that with the French Revolution. And it's not merely a feeling. Um, it's not merely an emotion. You don't have to feel hatred to be resentful, or resentiment is the French word he uses in his text. So I'll give you the absolute minimum to read. Would just be, I don't know, one, two, three, four. I'm looking at my edition here. It's about six or seven pages. Um, and it's, it's in Genealogy of Morals, that book, which is free. It's online. You can find it pretty much anywhere because it's was written in the 19th century. I'll uh, link it in the first, show notes to this episode, so folks can yeah, have yeah. an online edition so at readily first, accessible. It's the first essay, the first essay, section 10 and 11, is where he talks about resentment and slave morality, and uh, he says basically, uh, let me see here. Yeah, he says that resentment is all about rejecting something, and that's where it really gets its passion from as opposed to accepting something positive. Um, and so he thinks, he thinks more or less that's what, re that's what revolution, that's what the French Revolution was. It, was. it was just a rejection of the aristocracy. It was not really an acceptance of anything that was really doable or practicable. So really then that resentment, resentment component really could be the theoretical justification for this kind of violent revolution where it's functioning as a real rejection of the status quo. Uh, resentment, I think, is, would it be a justification of, of the revolution? Is that what you're saying? I, I think so. From what you just said, it sounds like that could then be the, really, Nietzsche, the Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's idea that supports why revolution happens, because it's a, it's, it's people rejecting oh, yes. the status quo. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes, yes. It is a rejection of the status quo, for sure. But for him, it's a shallow rejection of the status quo. Oh, Okay. Um, so resentment, it's merely a rejection of the other. Um, and that's why I say, if you have an ideal vision of justice, that's going to turn into just a kind of shallow critique of the status quo, I think. Um, and that, that's what resentment is about. Resentment is about uh, merely reject. So basically, once you, uh, to put it crudely for the French revolutionaries, once you run out of aristocrats, you don't have a revolution anymore. Um, <laughs> right? So there's... They're, they're merely 
opposing the former regime. And when they run out of a former regime, they start turning on themselves. Hmm. Uh, and that's that's really what happens in the French Revolution is even their leader Robespierre starts being uh, called into question. Right. And and so that's the that's basically the idea that Nietzsche has is that once you get sort of addicted to a mentality of revenge, uh, that never stops. And it's a self-defeating mentality. Um, and the reason is because we're never satisfied because we never get to the sort of ideal vision of justice. In the back of my mind, I'm kind of hearing the, the lyrics of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton and the uh, Never Been Satisfied <laughs> and the, yeah. the, the revolutionary songs in there. But you know, a lot of what you're saying sounds so similar to to Marx and 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 his call. And, and I'm a little fuzzy on the relationship between Nietzsche and Marx, but I know they both are focused on some similar problems in modernity. And but but Marx seems to be calling for a sort of never-ending revolution, where we're always reaching for this utopic vision of the perfect communist society, and we've just got to keep ha- having revolutions till we get there. Is that? So is Nietzsche advocating that, or does he see this as a problem, or is no, he somewhere else? I, think, I else? think Marx and Nietzsche are – so Nietzsche – I think Nietzsche would label Marx as someone who hails the slave morality and, and praises a resentful attitude, whereas Nietzsche thinks resentment is caustic, poisonous, mm. problematic, never-ending, and uh, ultimately nihilistic. Uh, it leads to people just not even caring to live at all. Um, and he would call Marxist utopia, he would call that an ascetic ideal. He would call that a goal that's so abstract and perfect that we're never going to get to it. And, and to be fair to Marx, Marx thought that capitalism would do this to itself. Uh, he thought capitalism would just sort of implode and that the bourgeoisie would be able to sort of, uh, or that we would be able to, the people would be able to just overthrow the capitalistic regime because capitalism would, would collapse. It's unsustainable. Marx was very wrong about that. Um, and that's what, and so, but I would say, yes, many Marxists since Marx have tried to use Nietzsche and Marx together, but I would say Nietzsche admires the, uh, Nietzsche admires someone who can suffer a wrong and not respond with revenge much more than he does someone who can just perpetually take revenge their whole lives. Uh, he admires sort of the classic Greek hero far more than he does say a Robespierre revolutionary or something. You know, this, this conversation is reminding me of a book I read uh, a year, maybe 18 months ago. Uh, it's by a scholar here in uh, Wake Forest. His name is Dr. Ivan Spencer. He's a professor at the college at Southeastern. He wrote a book called Tweetable Nietzsche, and I, I read it to do a review of it for the Acton Institute's Religion and Transatlantic Religion and Liberty Transatlantic. And uh, in there, um, Dr. Spencer points to the fact that very few people read enough Nietzsche to really understand him. They, they sort of form their own idealistic view of Nietzsche. And he, he suggests instead that Nietzsche is a very important thinker. He's a fascinating thinker. But he's not a consistent or systemic thinker that really is going to build a system of philosophy. Would you agree with that, Blake? Or would you see something different going on with Nietzsche's works? Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. I can't see you oh, anymore, cool. but I can still hear you. So this is fine. That's all good. <laughs> Um, yeah, I would definitely agree. Nietzsche is not a systematic thinker. And that's what, uh, in many ways, that's what distinguishes a lot of people in the critical tradition, uh, is they resist a much more systematic way of writing um, and try, and he writes in a much more aphoristic way, uh, a much more poetic way, a much more literary way. He has lots of different styles of writing. Uh, he doesn't 
yield to just one of them. But he never really uses the classic propositional, you know, traditional logic way of writing. Um, so yes, I would agree that uh, Nietzsche is not someone that you can really totally understand by just reading one book. Um, but uh, for the very, at, at the very least, if you want to understand just this part of his philosophy, which is his philosophy of um, morality, uh, the genealogy of morals definitely is, is the good place to start for that. And beyond good and evil, if you, if you want to have a broader vision of Nietzsche's philosophy, beyond good and evil is a good place to start. Well, that, that sounds like a great kind of uh, bite-sized advice for folks prepping this case, uh, which is in June. So they don't have a ton of time, but they've got a decent amount of time. So yeah, as I, I mentioned before, uh, we'll, I'll definitely link a copy of the... That, that, that first essay, section 10 and 11, uh, maybe if you want to read the whole first essay, that could be good of the genealogy of morals. But no more than that. That's for the theory. If you really want a good illustration of the slave morality or resentful morality, uh, you can read the first 30 pages of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. Oh. Um, so that is actually a book that Nietzsche was reading right before he, re he wrote The Genealogy of Morals. Um, and in many ways, you'll get this picture. It's only about 20 or 30 pages, but you get this great picture of this petty bureaucrat who just loves causing little bits of suffering to people and enjoys it. Uh, and he doesn't even know why. It's not because he hates them particularly or even cares about them. He just suddenly finds himself in this well of pettiness and vengefulness. And that's very much a good picture of what Nietzsche means by vengefulness and slave morality and resentment. Well, I can certainly understand the uh, desire to revolt against a petty bureaucrat and all the ways that such uh, people can make ordinary life rather miserable. There's a uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the the movie Zootopia, but one of my favorite scenes in that, that uh, cartoon movie is uh, it, it shows the DMV run by sloths, and it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, it just every uh, – I think it's a great image of really the way in which a bureaucrat can certainly slow down life and, and spur resentment from ordinary folks. So. Yeah, and he thinks of the bureaucrat himself as resentful. Um, oh, he has nothing better to do than to cause people little bits of suffering. If you've been anybody who has a license will know if you go to a, a BMV or something, you are at the mercy of the bureaucrats. <laughs> they, uh, but but uh, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground has a good picture of someone who is resentful, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say if you want the theory, genealogy of morals is there. If you want a picture, or an illustration, then Dosta again, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground is easily accessible online. It's free. It's been out for so long. Oh, thank you, Blake, for, for those thoughts. Uh, so we're, we're kind of wrapping up to come down to a conclusion here. Uh, let me ask you one other, one other question, uh, particularly since you did some debate and mostly speech in college. Do you see any connection between your practical experience in public communication and that competitive realm and going on to uh, now higher studies and hopefully eventually being a professor of communication? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, from what I, I mean, one of the best memories I ever had was, uh, and you were there, so I think it was 2010 or 2011, uh, they sort of threw all the forensics people into debate and let us try it out. And uh, we ended up taking first in debate overall at, at Pi Kappa Delta Nationals. And uh, at that point, I really invested in the debate community. Although I didn't do a ton of debate, I talked to de debaters. <laughs> and it seems like debate is a community where people are interested in critical theory and sort of start to get their feet wet 
in a lot of sort of philosophy and critical theory, and they, they're interested in thinking. And I would say, yes, my interest in thinking overlaps with debate. And to some extent, I think the field of communication and various academic fields um, have some good continuity there. Um, at least for me, I liked the flexibility of forensics and debate. I could try on all kinds of different theoretical frameworks. Um, and uh, so that's why I'm in communication, because I get that same sort of free inquiry, as it were. Uh, there, there's something really free and kind of honestly kind of fun about uh, the ability to try on a set of ideas and a perspective and know that you're playing a game. And if you do it right, you can still hold what you actually believe on the one hand, but try on this very possibly polar opposite kind of point of view for a time. And then I find at least that when I do that, it sharpens what I actually believe about an issue or a philosophy. Uh, it forces me to think through a lot more clearly what I, what I really believe by going through that debate exercise. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, uh, in many ways, I understand people like to use, and correct me if I'm wrong, people like to use critique in order to get away from the proposition. Yes, right? that is absolutely correct. Right, so the affirmative will run a critique, and really I think what they're doing there is they're not, they're not really debating the people in front of them. They're debating the people who wrote the resolution. Oh, um, I like that idea. So I guess I would say debate the people in front of you, um, <laughs> and, and to some extent, you know, deal with the resolution and you're in a you're in a place where you are asked to debate what's given in front of you and that means you'll have to debate things you don't agree with that is part of the exercise and i would say that's been a part of the argumentative exercise since the beginning people like plato and aristotle and the sophists they called it disoy logoi arguing both sides of the case and i'd say yes you have a much better chance of knowing what you actually believe if you can argue some other position that is opposed to what you believe. Um, no better way to defeat the argument of another side than if you can advance it yourself. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Well, uh, Blake, how can our audience find you online? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Do you have a website? Are you working on a side book or something while you're also dissertating? How can, how can yeah, people yeah. find you online? No, I am. I am a pretty. I'm pretty much a luddite when it comes to social social media. But I do have an email address that people can get at me. Uh, it's just my name, Blake B L A K E dot Faulkner F A U L K N E R at Yahoo. And uh, feel I'm happy to field different questions that you might have, or send you resources, or what what have you. But yeah, I'm definitely in the throes of writing a dissertation, so I'm not very active socially speaking. <laughs> well, that's uh, that, that's probably a good thing. I don't know that there's a ton of value that happens on social media, though I've certainly enjoyed being able to kind of spread our podcast uh, through that and be able to uh, have conversations like this over over the internet. But uh, you're probably doing a much more worthwhile work on uh, working on your dissertation rather than spending lots of time on Instagram. Well. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring, and my guest this episode has been Blake Faulkner. We hope this episode is helpful to you. You can email us at whatstherez at gmail.com, or you can follow us at whatstherez underscore on Twitter and Instagram. We made this episode in hopes that it would be a good resource for everybody going to NSDA, uh, hashtag Nats19, preparing specifically for the Lincoln-Douglas resolution. We wish you the best of luck. If you like what you've heard on this episode, uh, find us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's the best way for people to find our, uh, find our, our stuff. And... Uh, 
Uh, join us next time for more What's the Res? And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek truth.